0: Guys, grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to resume our study of um, the the book of Ephesians. Uh, We've been interrupted a couple of, three or four weeks, but we're back at it. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. You follow as I read, and here we go. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever Guys, this morning we're going to talk about prayer. Uh, We're going to talk about this prayer, and we're going to talk about prayer in general. Um, I I would point out that this is not actually a prayer. It's a report about a prayer that Paul had prayed for the Ephesian church. Um, This is is what he prayed and how he prayed for those Ephesians to whom he's writing. Um, But we're going to pray, we're going to look at A little bit about that prayer that he prayed. And we're going to talk about the subject in general. Just prayer. Now guys, uh, over the years, uh, you've not heard me say much about prayer, have you? And rightfully rightfully so. I mean, if you're going to talk about something, at least you ought to know something about it. Don't you think? Um, And I want you to know, that is a claim that I cannot make. Uh, I'm as bad at this as any of you may think you might be. I, I, know, the, uh, I know the textbook uh, information about prayer. Here it is. Uh, generally speaking, we pray to the Father in the uh, name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. But that's not to suggest that we cannot pray to other members of the Trinity. Um, Jesus says, if you ask me anything, I will do it. And uh, But that's, what, that's the kind of format or that you see in Ephesians 3. Paul says, I bow the knee before the Father. Because generally speaking, prayer is to the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's about the limit of my expertise. But that's not where we struggle, is it? <laughs> I mean, our struggles are more experiential when it comes to this, this prayer business, aren't they? I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not so much the theology that, that concerns us. It's the it's the practice of this thing. Um, what happens as a result of when I pray? How, how am I supposed to pray? What do you feel when you're finished? Um, do you enjoy it? Is it, um, is, it is it confident? Uh, is it is it easy? What what is what is it supposed to do? Those are the matters that we struggle with. And, and I hope to address some of those as we, as we proceed this morning um, out of Ephesians 3. Let me start by just a quick, what Steve Brown used to call a side road. I just want you to know this much about the, uh, this portion of Ephesians. Um, I, I, you do know, don't you, that the, the whole book of Ephesians was written from a jail cell in Rome. Paul was a Roman prisoner when he wrote this. And, and the reason I point that out is... In the in the entirety of the book, and certainly in this prayer, you never hear him once mention the stresses and strains of his circumstances. You never hear him saying something like "Get me out of here." He never says that, and that that's impressive to me, because most of the time that I'm praying, I'm praying about my bad or good circumstances, and and I, I'm telling you guys one of the the key distinctions between a Christian and a non Christian is that a non Christian is so tied to his circumstances. When his circumstances go south, he goes south. He loses hope. Christians aren't supposed to be people like that. And that's what you see in the Apostle Paul. His circumstances, you never hear them mentioned, even. <laughs> Which is dead impressive, isn't it? What'd you pray about this morning? last night? Circumstances? Like me? Well, that's just something I, I found very impressive about the prayer itself. Guys, I want to look at this subject under three headings. First of all, the prerequisites of prayer. Second of all, the fundamentum of prayer. And thirdly, um, prayer's holy grail. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss the subject under those three headings the prerequisites, the fundamentum, and prayer's holy grail. Here we go. Let's talk about prerequisites first. The prerequisites of prayer. Three of them. I'm, I'm going to tell you a story um, about my first prerequisite. It, it's a story that's found in uh, Jeremiah 42 and 43. Uh, towards the end of the book, Jeremiah tells this story about, um, about Judah, and Judah is on her last leg guys. Um, She has just been conquered by the Babylonian army led by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, All of her citizens have been swept into captivity. They've taken them off to Babylon. They're in the Babylon captivity. But they've left a few people behind, kind of the dregs of society. They left them behind under this puppet governor whose name was Gedaliah. Gedaliah is then almost immediately assassinated by a rebel by the name of Ishmael. And so the people recognize, oh my goodness, we're in quite a pickle here. Um, because that we expect a, a brutal reprisal on the part of the Babylonian army. They're going to come back and then kill the rest of us. And so what do they do? They go to Jeremiah. And they say, Jeremiah, listen, we don't know what we're supposed to do here, but um, could you pray for us? We don't know whether we should stay here or whether we should go to Egypt. Could you pray? Ask God what we should do. And then they add this. Whatever, whatever he says do, that's what we're going to do. So Jeremiah says, okay, I'll go pray for you. So he does. And then in in chapter 42, verse seven, the text says, and 10 days later, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. (laughs) 10 days later, what does not, does God not realize we're in an emergency here? I mean, how can I wait 10 days for an answer under these dire circumstances? And apparently, during those 10 days, the people had already made up their minds what they're going to do. And so Jeremiah comes back to them and says, I've heard from the Lord. And um, he says, uh, what'd you hear? And they say, uh, well... What, we heard, what I heard was, you're supposed to stay here and not go to Egypt. You know what the people said to him then? You're lying. And then they do exactly what they'd already determined to do. They pack their bags and they head on to Egypt. Hey guys, do you get my point? <laughs> In terms of a prerequisite of prayer... I'm afraid that when we start praying, we've pretty much already made up our minds about what we're going to do, whether we get an answer or not. Gang, I guess guess the first thing that you and I have to settle is whether or not we are willing to do what God has asked us to do once we hear from him. That is, if indeed we do hear from him, and if you're not willing to do what he says he inst- what he's instructing you to do, then for heaven's sakes save your breath. I'm simply saying that the first prerequisite of prayer is obedience. You don't go to God and tell him, okay, this is, what I, this is how I've got it worked out. And I'll give you three options. You go work on it and come back to me and let me know which one's the best. No. The first prerequisite is, is a willing heart to do what he says to do once I hear from him. Here's the second prerequisite, guys. You know, the Bible often describes people as crying out to the Lord. You heard of that crying out to the Lord? <laughs> um, but what does that mean? What does that mean to cry out to the Lord? I mean, do we approach him rather demurely with, with uh, polite restraint and using these well-worn, time-honored uh, Christian catchphrases of the contemporary uh, prayer meeting? You know, guys, when, when, um, when Susie and I were in seminary, we, went, we worked at this little church in Louisville, Mississippi, And they had a prayer meeting every Wednesday night. And so Susie and I, of course, went to this prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. And if I heard it one time every Wednesday, I heard it six times every Wednesday. I want to pray for the missionaries on the foreign fields. It was the same language every time. I want to pray for the missionaries on the foreign fields. I want to pray for the missionaries on the foreign fields. Do you think that's crying out to the Lord? You know, um, I, I don't know what your experience has been, but in public prayer meetings, so much of it is announcement. Uh, dear Lord, um, you know, I've got a doctor's appointment on Monday morning at 8 30 um, uh, over at Poplar and Minden Hall um, because my blood pressure has been high. What do you think that is? That's an announcement, ladies and gentlemen. That's not crying out to the Lord. You know, here, here's the point I'm trying to make there's really no true prayer without agony. Now, that that word agony might be a little overstated, but maybe you get the point. You know, I, I think that's probably one of the problems in the prayer that comes out of public prayer meetings. What little prayer we have is shallow, it's timid, it's carefully censored, it's full of oratorical flourishes, and basically hot air. Guys, there's little agony in it, and therefore there's little honesty or humility we seem to think that the lord is like everyone else we know that he cannot really handle real honesty so we put on our Sunday best to to go over and visit him and when we return home we take off all our fancy duds and we're left with what's underneath and what's underneath is the dirty underwear of our own hypocrisy why do we flatly refuse to bring any sense of real emotion and, and honesty to our prayer lives. Do you think that perhaps if God really knew me, he won't like me? Is that it? Come on, guys. Who are we kidding? He already knows and sees everything there is about us. So, so why not just lay all of our cards on the table? Even our private prayer, much less the public part. We Christians have a way of tiptoeing around the throne of God Approaching him as if he's some kind of invalid or some kind of dottering old man who's about to take a nap. What I'm suggesting is that the second prerequisite is honest, passionate transparency. Obedience, honest, passionate transparency. Here's the third prerequisite of prayer, guys. Um, Can we talk? You you, you do know what our real problem is, don't you? I think. I think what we're really afraid of is that we're going to get no answer at all. Or at least we're not going to get it in the time frame that uh, that we have set. Which raises the whole issue of unbelief. Gang, I think... As as little as we all might know about the New Testament, we know at least this much. We know that that prayer that is unbelieving is not going to work. Can can I read you a statement on the part of Jesus? He says, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. (laughs) And there's the ringer. We really don't believe there's going to be an answer. And that's where the that's where the rubber meets the road, guys. I'm saying that the prerequisites are first obedience, second, kind of an honest, passionate transparency, and faith. Skip those three, and we can save our breath. And maybe that's why we experience such pitiable prayer lives. Now. That brings me to my second point. And there's, um, there's something in the text that I want you to see. I, I'm calling this the fundamentum of prayer. By the way, I don't even know that that's a word. I think I made it up. Uh, fundamentum. It's, maybe it's a Latin version of a, of a word. I don't know it, but it sound good. Um, it's the fundamentum. But you know what I mean. The, the, the issue, the fundamental, the, the, the bedrock, the, 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 the absolute non-negotiable it's, it's in verse 12, although I didn't read verse 12. It's, uh, let me read it to you, uh, Ephesians 3. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Look at how that verse begins, guys. It says, in whom. Now, you know that whom is a pronoun. And pronouns have antecedents. And so, who is the antecedent of that pronoun? Um, verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he is realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom? That in whom is referring to Jesus Christ, guys. And what it says is we have access in and through Christ and no other way. In whom we have boldness and access. There is no possibility of prayer except in and through Jesus Christ. Without Christ, we can't truly pray. You know, guys, classically, there are two ways of soliciting the favor of God. The one way that, 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 that so many of the world prefers is that we try very, very hard to be very, very good so that God will take notice. The the other way is to beg God for his blessing and to refuse to let him off the hook until he comes through. It's that latter way, as inelegant and as impious as it might sound, that's the biblical way, guys. It, It is those who refuse to give up on God, who end up with his blessing. Those who utterly despair of trying to do anything good for God, yet who blindly insist that God be good to them. Those are the faithful ones, ladies and gentlemen. Those are the ones who are done with all of this nonsense that they can somehow perform so good that God will notice them and will be quick to give them anything that they might ask for because I'm really impressed with the behavior of this fellow. We're done with that, ladies and gentlemen. The faithful ones are the people who understand That their only access to this God is in and through Jesus Christ. That the only thing that God owes them is punishment. And yet, that same God has provided a Savior. A Savior who not only paid for their sin, but this same Savior has, has opened an access so that you and I might gain audience. Guys, I I called it the fundamentum. (laughs) But here it is. The only true prayer is prayer that's uttered in and through Christ. So, are you in Christ? Because that's the fundamentum. Apart from that, I mean, giving up on all this foolishness about my performance is really, is, is really what makes me pleasing to God. I simply come back and lay hold again to Christ and his work. That's, that's the heart and soul, ladies and gentlemen, of anything that is, that is worthy of the name prayer to it. Now, let me, let me get to my last third and last point. Um, I call this the uh, prayer's holy grail. You know what a holy grail is, guys? It's the thing that you really want. It's the thing that you're after. It's your quest, the object of your quest. It's the holy grail. What is it that prayer is really trying to do? Well, it's here. It's here in this text, guys, and I want you to see it. Um, I, I said earlier that Paul does not ask for a change in his circumstances. That's true. But he does ask for a change. He asks for a change on the inside of us. That's what Paul was always after, guys. And that's what's got to be the goal of our prayer lives. That is, that the inside of us would get changed. It's, it, I, I pray not so that I can change God to see things like I see them. I go to God and ask that he might enable me to see things like he sees them. Maybe you've asked the question, does, does prayer change God? The answer is no. But does prayer change things? You bet it does, ladies and gentlemen. It, um, and one of, the, one of the foremost things that he changes is me. And that's what Paul was after here. And, and, and everything, everything he's praying for here is something that's going to go on on the inside of the believers at Ephesus. Everything about Christianity, ladies and gentlemen, is, is, is something that takes place on the inside. It's an inside-out religion. All the other world religions are outside-in. That is, change your behavior, exercise some moral reform, and, and you'll become something. Christianity says no. No. That my insides get changed, and as a result, my outsides change. L- look at the prayer. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, guys. He says in verse 16 um, strengthen with power through his spirit in your inner being. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Verse 18, may have strength to comprehend. And then verse 19. filled up with all the fullness of God. On the inside, filled up with what? He tells you in basically verses 18 and 19 that you can have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Guys, apparently Paul understood that the thing that will sustain us through the thicks and the thins is a conviction way down deep on the inside that we are loved by God. He wants them to know the height, the depth, the length, the width, the love of God because that's what is going to change you on the outside once that gets convicted, once that becomes possessed on the inside. We sing about it a lot. We talk about it a lot. But down deep, down deep in that place where only you and God go, I don't know that you're convinced that God really does love you, and let the slightest hint of difficulty arise, or let there be the slightest failure in my behavior, and then I begin to stir around about Who am I, and where do I stand, and am I okay, and all that business. Guys, if you're still awake, I want you to see this. It's in Deuteronomy. you got to go to the fifth book in the Bible. Go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Guys, the book of Deuteronomy is a collection of sermons. It's a collection at the end of Moses' ministry. Moses is about to die. It's at the end of his life. It's a collection of sermons. And what he's doing is reviewing the history of Israel before he dies. He goes over the fact. Remember y'all were down in Egypt? Remember that? You were down in Egypt and, and God stretched forth his mighty hand. And um, uh, those 11 plagues and all those gnats and <clears throat> blood and Passover and all that business. And he, he, he extracted you out of Egypt. And then you came to the Red Sea. And the Red Sea was, you know, what are we going to do now? And the army was behind them and, and God parted the Red Sea. And they walked through dry shot and then the it, Egyptian army came through. And they drowned. And then he fed them and he gave them water and, and then he brings them to Sinai and he gives them the Ten Commandments and, and uh, <coughs> says, you're my people and all its business. And then they come to the edge of the promised land. They're 11 days away. 11 days out from the promised land. And so they decided to send out some spies. You remember that? Send out the spies, check out the land, come back, bring us a report. So they send out 12 spies. They come back, 10 of them with a bad report. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb with a good report. Now, that's what Moses is doing here. Enter in with me at verse 26. Moses says, yet you would not go up. But rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said. Because the Lord hated us. He brought us out of Egypt. What part of deliverance communicates that God hates you? What part of that? But yet, ladies and gentlemen, at the base of our souls, there's this uneasiness about whether God really loves you. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, in some of your poorer moments, what you're asking yourself is Does he hate me? Am I loved? You go back to Ephesians 3, and Paul says, Here's what I'm praying for you, that on the inside of you, that you can be filled up with a comprehension of the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God for you that is on display. in the person and the work of Christ Jesus. You know what prayer's Holy Grail is, ladies and gentlemen? You know what prayer is supposed to be doing? It's supposed to be changing us. And at the heart of that change is a conviction, a comprehension That because of what I see in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that God loves somebody as broken as I am. And as inconsistent, and as flawed, and as hypocritical, and as inconsistent as me. The Apostle Paul says, I want you to know that you're And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, the same need that the Ephesian Christians have, we have. We do. And it's a need that is only met by Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, the love of God is on display. it is Jesus Christ that gives me access to this God in my prayer life. But he also gives me reconciliation with this God. And though I have got some really ugly skeletons hanging in my closet that I don't care for anyone to know or see, Listen to me. In Christ, I am loved. You get that? And not only you change, but so does the way you pray. Our Father, um, would you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as Paul has prayed, give us a comprehension of the height and the depth and the length and the breadth and the width, the enormity of the love of God that is on display in Christ Jesus for people as wicked as I am. In the quiet of my own bedroom, when when the evil one is trying to suggest that because in light of my failures, how could God love somebody like me, would you remind me that the love of God is not seen in my performance? The love of God is seen in Christ's performance. And that my whole shelter, my whole refuge is Christ. That without Him, I I can save my breath in prayer. But without Him, I'm doomed. But in Him, I have access. I'm reconciled. My sin is forgiven. And that I am a son. I am a son of the God who made me and found a way to save me. Father, as we grow together as a congregation, expand our grasp of the glorious mention, the glorious concept of the love of God for sinners such as we. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.